and I have been uh, here attending this church for almost 14 years, going on 14 years now. And so you all have truly, indeed, become family to us. So I count it a very sweet privilege to open God's Word uh, with you with you this morning. So, if you can, please, let's grab our Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, and we are interested this morning in verses 9 through 14. Luke, uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. God, give us ears to hear this morning and hearts that are sensitive to your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. Henry A. Grunwald managing editor of the New York Times and editor-in-chief of Time Incorporated for about 20 years altogether, stood by this saying, there is only one religion, and that is to be good. There is only one religion, and that is to be good. He is the man who ordered the 1966 Time magazine cover story, Is God Dead?, a piece investigating trends and problems that were faced by contemporary theologians in the 1960s. Now, Grunewald himself believed in the existence of God. He had said, I'm convinced that the universe without God makes no sense. Henry Grunewald was a self-made man, an Austrian Jew who fled his homeland when the Nazi German Reich annexed Austria in 1938. Though they were wealthy in Austria, his family struggled in America. He began as a part-time copy boy at Time magazine, an errand boy earning $4.50 a day while he pursued a college education and developed and learned English. At Time magazine, he worked his way up from the very bottom, becoming the youngest senior editor at 28, and eventually to sit as editor-in-chief. In 1937, he himself wrote the Time editorial calling for President Nixon's resignation over Watergate. And in 1987, President Ronald Reagan appointed this man as ambassador to Austria, the land of his birth. 
This man embodied the American dream. Not only so, but he was actually a pretty okay guy. He was described as a man of grace and wisdom. He was a man of great honor and great decency, wrote the former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Mr. Grunewald was a hardworking, well-accomplished, reputable man. And his take on religion, how one gets to heaven, how one gets to God, is this. There is only one religion, and that is what? And that is to be good. But I'll have to admit, this guy's right. Indeed, there is only one religion. And truly, there is only one way to heaven, one way to God, and that is definitely to be good. Amen, Mr. Grunwald. Done. Right? All right. But let me up the ante. Okay, let me up the ante on Mr. Grunwald. Because while being good may be good enough, while good may be good, good is not good enough. Good will never be good enough. Because for heaven, you have to be better than good. For heaven, to be with God, you have to be righteous. As Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this begs the age-old question, how then, how is anyone able to get into heaven? For we know that there is no one righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. And even the unregenerate man will generally concede to the fact that he cannot meet a standard of absolute, 100%, impeccably unmixed, untainted perfection. And yet God has set eternity in his heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Deep in his soul, deep in his soul, he knows that there is absolutely something more beyond this transient life. Just as Mr. Grunwald said, a universe without God indeed makes no sense. And God has etched his timeless moral law upon man's heart so that man's conscience naturally bears witness to the reality that all is not well within and that he has a need to be made right with God. No matter how he seeks to drown that reality, finding his identity in X, Y, and Z, his career, his contribution to society, his competence as a husband or a wife, as a mother or a father, Finding his value and his moral standing in doing good and being good. Ultimately, he will either realize this now or when it's too late. His greatest need is that he must be made right with God. And so we must ask, how then? How is a man made right with God? How is a man to be accepted before God in the court of heaven? How is a man justified before God? And this morning in Luke 
chapter 18, Jesus gives us three contrasts. Three contrasts that direct us towards how a person is justified before God. Three contrasts that direct us towards how a person is justified before God. First, we're going to see two different people. Two different people, verses 9 through 10. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, at first glance, you might think, okay, I think I have this parable all figured out. Okay, you have a Pharisee, that's the bad guy. You have the tax collector, he's got to be the good guy. And Jesus must be just addressing the Pharisees in his audience here. While we, we are 2,000 years removed and more than 2,000 miles away. So we're off the hook. Right? Done. Next passage. We're not off the hook just yet. Because it says, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. That phrase, some people, literally means whoever the ones. Whoever the ones. So essentially, meaning anyone. Anyone, meaning everyone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous. Anyone who believes that they are able to live a life that pleases God so as to gain a righteous standing before him. Anyone and everyone who views others with contempt. Anyone who denigrates his brother, looking down on him with contempt because that brother doesn't measure up. That word for contempt is used in Luke 23, describing the repugnance that Herod and his soldiers showed Christ as they mocked him. Therefore, the Lord's message here is universal in its scope. And it serves as a warning to all who live according to a self-righteous system of belief, which typically spills out horizontally in contempt for others. Truly, how we view our standing before God will be externally manifested in how we view our fellow man. So we have the context now let's meet our characters. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now they went up because the temple stood atop a hill. This was the t- temple was situated on the temple mount. So everyone went up to the temple, even if they lived in the city, within the city walls. Now one of these men was a Pharisee. These were the most pious members of the social order. They were dignified, respected, revered. R.C. Sproul says they were the paragons of righteousness in Jewish society. High society. They were la creme de la creme de la creme de la creme. Indeed, they were well respected. But it was not without reason. Because they were well disciplined. They were devoutly right religious. They were steadfast. They were models of morality. These men were above reproach. You could not lay a hand on these guys. Now what about the other guy? The other was a tax collector. 
Now, more often than that, whenever we hear this term tax collector in the New Testament, it's typically used alongside other terms such as sinners and prostitutes. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They were pawns working for Rome while extorting their own people. They were scoundrels, crooks despised by all. They surrounded themselves with thugs, lowlifes, muscle who provided the intimidation when necessary to get people to pay their taxes. These were considered the scum of the earth. And they were despised by all. So here we have these two guys, two very different people, a Pharisee and a tax collector, an upstanding citizen and a crook. MacArthur writes, these two men were polar opposites. They were the most pious and the most impious, the most respected and the most despised members of Jewish society. Now, what was it again that these two guys are going up to the temple for? They're going to the temple to pray. As Jesus called his father's house a house of prayer. Now, Jewish worshipers in those days often ascended the temple mount for prayer during the morning and evening uh, sacrifices. This is around 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And this was significant because it would be after those atoning sacrifices were made that prayers and worship would be offered up to God. So our Pharisee and tax collector are both going to the temple to pray. They're both going there intent on the same purpose. Or are they? Let's look at their prayers. So we've seen two different people. And now let's look at two distinct prayers. Two distinct prayers, verses 11 through 13. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so the Pharisee is standing there as he prayed. Now this is normal. There's actually nothing wrong with him standing there inherently. Standing was a typical posture of prayer. But look at what he says. It says that he was praying this to himself. He was praying this to himself. Now that's a little weird. Now some think that he was praying silently, but that's a little too subtle to be consistent with this context. Some suggest he was praying literally to himself. He's not praying to God at all. He's just praying to himself. But that's just really weird. (laughs) And it's actually contrary to normal Jewish practice. So that would have been really strange even for Jesus' hearers. It's best to understand this as seeing the Pharisee as praying towards himself. He's bringing all the attention there upon himself. He was basically pray-bragging about himself, if that can be a word just for today pray bragging. He was focusing his prayer in the direction of himself in a self-congratulatory fashion. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This prayer is essentially a self-eulogy. This is a list of personal achievements. The Pharisee is listing his moral credentials. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You notice what's absent from this prayer. The Pharisee doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't petition God to preserve him or protect him from evil or adversity that might lead him down a wrong path. Like what we see so pervasively in David's prayers in the Psalms. Psalm 19.13, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Or Psalm 91, Guard my soul and save me. Guide me in your truth. But our exemplary citizen here makes none of those requests. He simply thanks God that he has such an extensive resume. While at the same time, slinging mud on those who don't. God, I thank you that I am not like those people. Swindlers, those extortioners, those thieves, unjust, literally unrighteous, those lawbreakers, those sinners, adulterers, those immoral types those fornicators. But our guy is none of those things. He's faithful to his wife. He conducts himself himself with integrity. He drives the speed limit. He doesn't cheat on his taxes. He is a morally upright man. He is above reproach. And how did he view those who weren't? Verse 11, thank God I'm not like other people. At the end, even like this tax collector. That word for this here is used in Luke 15 in in the parable of the prodigal son when the older brother says of his younger brother who had returned. He doesn't refer to him as my brother. What does he say? What does he call him? This son of yours. This son of yours, who's squandered his life on profligate living. This son of yours. And in Acts 17, when Paul's at Mars Hill, the Athenian philosopher said of him, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And in Luke 15, the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about how Jesus was eating with sinners. And they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Haddon Robinson says, many Christians define sin as the sum total of acts which they themselves do not commit. It's those things that other people do. Now in the Pharisee's prayer, he doesn't ask God for help for anything. Nope. No petitions, no requests, No beseeching God for divine assistance. It would appear that he doesn't really need God at all. No, thank you. I'm good. Instead, our guy believes that he's done even more than God has required. He fasted twice a week. 
Now I ask you, how many fasts do you think were required according to the Jewish law? One. A year on the Day of Atonement. But the truly devout Pharisee fasted not only once a year, not, not even once a week, but he fasted twice a week. You know, I'm not one of those Christmas and Easter Christians. I attend Sunday worship every single week. In fact, I attend every church function. I even attend both worship services, 8 a.m. and 11 a.m., and the Cantonese service. (laughs) What else? He paid tithes of all that he got. He tithed more than the law required, not just his earnings, but everything that he received. This guy has gone above and beyond the call of duty. He has exceeded the expectations of the law. Robert Stein wrote, God was very fortunate to have someone like him. Hence, he had no need for God's forgiveness. With a fuel tank filled with this much righteousness, he must be able to make it on his own. He doesn't need God. Now what about our other guy? Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He stood some distance away, maybe in the outer court of the temple, far from the altar, far from the holy place. And it's likely that he would have been unsynagogued because immoral tax collectors wouldn't be permitted to participate in the synagogue community. No, not them. Jewish rabbis didn't even permit God's holy law to be taught to unsynagogued, indecent men such as this one. Our guy was a marked and branded man. Unclean. According to the Mishnah, during the morning and evening sacrifices, if anyone was to be found unclean in the the temple area, they were ushered out and escorted off the premises through the eastern gate. Does anyone know what's beyond the eastern wall of the temple? The Kidron Valley. This was the place for rubbish and filth. A landfill where dead carcasses were tossed and where idols were burned in the Old Testament. This was the place for all the unwanted trash. And so they would ask guys like this to leave in that direction. And this is precisely how our tax collector viewed himself. Because he was even unwilling to lift, his, lift up his eyes to heaven. He knows he's not accepted among the people. He knows he's an outcast. He knows he's a swindler, an extortionist, a traitor, and a thief for Rome. He knows he's an unrighteous lawbreaker. He knows he's an immoral man, perhaps an, an adulterer. So he stands far off. 
He knows he has no right to stand close to the altar and the sanctuary. He knows his place. He knows that he has no right to be here at all. No right to be counted among the people of God. And he knows he most certainly has no right to lift up his eyes to heaven. To even turn his gaze in the direction of the Holy One. This man knows that he, on his own, is in no position to be accepted before God. And friends, on our own, neither are we. Why? Because God takes sin seriously. The Old Testament is replete with making this clear. Ezekiel 18.20 For the soul who sins shall die. And even from the very beginning, it was one sin by one man that plunged all of humanity in his line down into corruption, into guilt and death, both physical and spiritual. In Noah's time, God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6.5. And because of humanity's multiplied sins, God drowned the earth in a flood. And as A.N. Martin once said, the bloated bodies floating upon the cresting waves was God's voice saying, I take human sin seriously. And our tax collector understands this. He knows that God is not to be trifled with in regards to his sin. He knows the wrath that rests upon him. And therefore, he proceeded to beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this expression of beating one's breast was an expression of heart-wrenching grief, often expressed in the death of a loved one. And it was not customary for men to beat their breasts in this culture. This was a female gesture. This was not manly. It was a sign of weakness to show that much sorrow. But this tax collector is overcome by the anguish in his heart over his sin. He doesn't care. The crowds at Jesus' crucifixion did this exact same thing at the moment of his death when they realized what they had done. And our tax collector knows what he's done. He knows exactly who he is. He is, as he describes himself to be, the sinner, definitively. You see, the tax collector has a proper view of himself. This tax collector sees himself as God sees him. He knows he doesn't deserve to be here at the temple before the presence of God. But he has come. Because here, 
each morning and evening. An atoning sacrifice is going to be made. A sacrifice that will intercede. A sacrifice that may allow his small prayer for mercy to have an audience with God. So he pleads to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful. That word be merciful literally is the verb form of propitiation. What is a propitiation? Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. It is the satisfaction of God's just and holy wrath. So when he says, God, be merciful to me, he's saying, God, be propitious towards me. God, appease your wrath towards me. Make satisfaction of your just and righteous wrath towards me. A wrath I know that I rightfully deserve. Let that atoning sacrifice atone also for me as well, God. Oh God, please make atonement for me that your wrath may be turned away from me. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Two different people with two distinct prayers. Now what is the outcome? What is the third and final contrast? Two divergent paths. Verse 14, two divergent paths. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One came down justified. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. A legal declaration of righteousness where God legally declares a sinner righteous and acquitted of all sin by virtue of the saving work of Christ. So in our courtrooms, the accused defendant will be pronounced either guilty or not guilty, right? Now in justification, the already guilty... The already guilty, he stands already condemned as guilty, is pronounced not just not guilty, because that just gets you back to neutral zero. But rather, he's declared positively righteous and therefore accepted before God. And how does this occur? It is through faith, laying hold of Christ, the object of faith. It's not by virtue of one's faith. It's faith laying hold of faith's object. It is faith laying hold of Christ and his saving work on the sinner's behalf. And by the sinner's union with Christ in faith, His sin is removed. But it's not like it's just swept under the rug and just gone. That sin is imputed, attributed to Christ, as in the charges against him. The charges against him are dropped, 
and imposed on Christ. And hence, Christ is pronounced guilty in the sinner's place. And even more so, Christ's life of purchased righteousness, of, of perfect righteousness before God's holy law, that life is, is imputed, attributed to the sinner. For those who are justified, God sees them not only as if they never sinned, but also as if they lived Christ's one perfect life as their own. The only righteous life that has any standing at all before God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 It has also been said this way, Believers are declared righteous, not by their own righteousness, but because of their union with the righteous one. Not by their own righteousness, but because of their union with the righteous one. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One came down justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The lesson here is not go and be humble. Okay, don't make that mistake. Because no one is justified before God by being humble. We can actually totally get this wrong and be no different from the Pharisee. We could close our Bibles and pray, all right, God, we thank you that we are not like other people arrogant, boastful, self-assured, even like this obnoxious, self-righteous Pharisee. I am humble and meek. I am lowly and conscientious towards all that I meet. It's no different. We'd just be trusting in the merit of humility to gain a standing before God. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Might we say, let not the humble man boast in his humility. The humility in our passage is not the humility in the sense as a, a virtue, an unpretentious humility, a, a self-yielding and lifting others up type of humility. And that's also good. But that's Philippians chapter 2. Here, we're talking about humility in the sense of recognizing one's neediness. Humility in the sense of humble circumstances. Humility in the sense of being poor in spirit, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Poor in spirit, not just lower middle class in spirit, but totally bankrupt in spirit. I'm talking about chapter 11. I'm talking about default and foreclosure. This is humility born out of desperation. Because of original sin, 
as a son of Adam and because of his own sins that he's accumulated all his life. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Romans 6.23. Because of all that, this man is neck deep in the red, in the negative. His debt, his insurmountable debt before the holy God is deeper than the sea. And he is very well aware of it. That is the humility our passage is speaking about. The humility of a hungry child that comes to his father with empty hands outstretched. One preacher once said, those who know their true spiritual condition will seize grace like a starving orphan seizes bread. They will seize grace like a starving orphan seizes upon bread. Just as Jesus says in the next passage, halfway through verse 16, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. R.C. Sproul writes, a childlike faith is a simple, confident trust in and dependence upon our Heavenly Father. Ultimately, we need to understand that there is nothing intrinsically different between these two men. They are both sinners. They both deserve God's wrath and are both in need of his mercy. The only difference between them is that one understood his need while the other did not. One of them, as John Piper says, struts into the court of heaven and places his self-righteousness on the table as the ground of his acceptance before God. While the other forsakes whatever filthy crumbs of righteousness he has and he comes before the judge with empty hands and nothing but a single plea. He knows he has nothing to offer. Only that which increases his guilt. And he is entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. And he looks to God to provide propitiation. Be merciful to me, God. Provide propitiation. He looks to God to provide appeasement of his wrath. To provide an atoning sacrifice that would bear his sin and bear God's wrath. He looks to God to provide a righteousness that he could never attain in a million years. And God responds with his righteous son crucified, nailed upon a cross. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he canceled out the certificate of debt that stood against us, having nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. Brothers and sisters, it is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. Now, some scholars chronologically place 
this section of parables to the winner of Christ's third year of ministry. So it would not be long before Jesus ascends Calvary's mountain, the upcoming Passover. So when he says, that man, that man is going to go down to his house justified. He is going to see it through. That God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26. Brothers and sisters, friends, it doesn't matter if we're Pharisees or tax collectors. Christ came to save sinners, of which we all are. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God, whether we be Pharisees or tax collectors, you know we're all sinners here. We all have nothing to offer you. We thank you, God, for not abandoning us to wrath without hope. We thank you for your son and the salvation that he offers to those who would embrace him in faith. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.